Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good day, my bed crimers. I hope you guys are all doing really well. To anyone new, a very warm welcome. Thank you for checking me out. If after listening to this video or watching it, you find you enjoyed it or learned something, please do me a favor, hit the like button. It really helps me so much. And also consider subscribing. Now, let's get started. One of the items seized by the police in their search of suspect Brian Koberger's apartment in Pullman, Washington, was one possible animal hair strand. Koberger doesn't have any pets in Pullman, from what we know. Thus, this hair may prove one of the holy grails of the seized evidence. If that hair strand is proven to be from an animal, and if it can then be narrowed down to a match with the breed of Kaylee Gonsalves' dog, Murphy, a golden doodle, that will be a significant link from the crime scene to Koberger and his apartment. Currently, Koberger is presumed innocent. That said, he's the police's one and only suspect in the case of the four slain University of Idaho students, Zana Cronodo, Maggie Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Kaylee Gonzalez. Thus, whatever evidence was found at Koberger's apartment is fair game for discussion. Today, I want to talk about this potential strand of animal hair evidence. It turns out hair evidence from animals has been used successfully in solving many human crimes. In fact, in rare cases, animal hair may be used as the primary source of evidence. But from what I read, it's typically used as corroborative evidence. I have trouble saying that word. Meaning supportive evidence, not the main evidence the entire case is based on. A strand of any hair, human or animal, falls into the category of trace evidence, also called transfer evidence. Trace evidence is generally thought of as any type of evidence occurring in sizes so small that it can be transferred or exchanged between two surfaces without being noticed, including being transferred between two people, or between one location and another. Things like hairs, fibers from clothing or carpeting, pieces of glass are examples of trace evidence. And this type of evidence can help tell the story of what happened during a crime. A Frenchman named Edmond Locard summed up trace or transfer evidence beautifully. He said, and I quote, the dust and debris that cover our clothing and bodies are the mute witnesses, sure and faithful, of all our movements and all our encounters. End quote. Trace evidence is incredibly important in a case like this one out of Moscow, Idaho. According to an article I found on ForensicScienceSimplified.org, Trace evidence can be transferred when two objects touch or when small particles are dispersed by an action or movement. 
Here are two examples. Paint can be transferred from one car to another car in a collision. A strand of hair from a perpetrator can be transferred to the victim on their sweater or on their shirt during an attack. It can also go the other way. A strand of a victim's hair can get transferred to the perpetrator's clothing just as easily. In this case, it's safe to assume the perpetrator shed the clothing he wore during the attack and then either discarded them somewhere, destroyed them as in burning them, or secreted them away to a hiding spot that only he knows. The same goes for the K-bar that the police believe the perpetrator used. I did not see any clothing items among the 15 pieces that the investigators seized from Koberger's apartment. If Koberger is found to be the perpetrator of this crime, then I think it's possible he discarded or buried the clothing he wore, and maybe that K-bar too, somewhere along the 50-minute circuitous, out-of-the-way drive that his cell phone data indicates he may have traveled from the crime scene back to his apartment in Pullman, Washington. Koberger could have gotten back home in 15 minutes if he'd taken the most direct and shortest route on Highway SR-270. Instead, the cell phone data seems to show him taking a remote path along very dark roads with no streetlights, some of which were gravel. Listen to how Nancy Grace described that exact journey when she and her crew traveled to Moscow, Idaho, and then to Pullman, Washington, in an SUV to experience it for themselves. Here in the studio with me, went along on our expedition where we went from the crime scene there on King Road on the circuitous route, and Cheryl McCollum, man, I wish he'd been in the in the SUV with us. There were times it takes takes him an hour and ten minutes to get home that way, or it took us that that long. Dark, uh, like where you and I grew up in the country, no street lights, pitch dark. Uh, couldn't see the road. A lot of the road was dirt or gravel, so bumpy that it would make everybody in the SUV shake up and down. That's so bumpy. He took that route for a reason, what should have been a 10-minute drive. That is why what's in that car is so significant. Unfortunately, there's so much desolate land along that route that it might prove too monumental a task to go out there and dig all along that possible journey in a myriad of haystacks looking for those needles. It's equally possible that Koberger discarded items later on Sunday morning when his white Elantra was captured traveling from Pullman down to Lewiston and Clarkston. It turns out there's a bridge across the Snake River in Clarkston called the Red Wolf Crossing Bridge that a local told Nancy Grace would be a place someone could go to toss evidence away in the water. I think that there had to be a reason why Koberger took that 45-minute trip from Pullman down to Clarkston and then another 45-minute trip back to Pullman, especially when you factor in the hours when his cell phone data and surveillance cameras 
capture him up on Sunday morning from 2.44 a.m. up until 5.30 a.m. Wouldn't you think he would have been exhausted Sunday morning? Why take a 90-minute road trip if you can sleep? Back to trace evidence. Think of how often you find a stray strand of hair on your clothing. It doesn't take much to shed a few locks. Such trace evidence can be used by the investigators to reconstruct an event or to show that a person was present during the crime. In this case, if that possible animal hair can be shown to belong to Murphy, it's going to be hard for Brian Koberger and his team to explain how it got from the house in Moscow to his apartment in Pullman. Analysts in a forensic laboratory should be able to tell investigators if that strand of hair is human or animal in origin. In the case of human hair, the analysts can go even further and determine where on the body the hair strand came from, as in from the scalp or from the pubic region. They can also determine the color, shape, and chemical composition of the hair, and often the race and general health of the source person too, meaning the person from whom the hair came. Analysts can also tell if a human hair strand was shed naturally by a person or if it was forcibly removed. We know victims sometimes reach up and grab a perpetrator's hair, ripping a bunch of the hair in the process. And it can also go the other way with the perpetrator grabbing a hold of a victim's hair to keep the person from getting away. And the perpetrator can end up with a bunch of hair in his hand as well, and perhaps also on his clothing. Forcibly removed hairs from a human, when placed under a high-tech microscope, will exhibit stretching and damage to the root area. They may also have tissue attached to them. A naturally shed hair will typically display an undamaged club-shaped root. Per that article on Forensic Science Simplified, and I now quote, if the hair still has a follicle or root attached, DNA testing may be used to identify an individual. Otherwise, hair comparison is typically used only to exclude, end quote. Here's how I interpret that wordy sentence. If the hair strand still has that little club-shaped root on the end of it, then DNA can be extracted from it, and that DNA can tell the authorities precisely which human being the hair strand came from. But we're talking about one strand of possible animal hair in this case, and unfortunately, the results analysts can derive from a strand of animal hair are not as precise as those they can get from a strand of human hair. Here's how it works. Once investigators discovered that one strand of potential animal hair, they would have had a protocol to follow to ensure they properly documented it, photographed it, bagged it, labeled it, and sent it to the forensic laboratory. And you can bet the investigators also went to see Kaylee's dog, Murphy, to take a tweezer and pluck some of his hairs out. Sorry, Murphy. These additional hairs plucked from Murphy are what you call control samples. The analysts would then compare the control hair samples to the one strand found inside Koberger's apartment. By the way, I read that one of Koberger's downstairs neighbors 
reported hearing him vacuum early on the morning of Sunday, November 13th, 2022, the day of the crime. We know that the investigator seized the contents of a vacuum cleaner dustbin from Koberger's home. It's quite possible more hair, human and or animal, will be found in that dustbin. You have to wonder why Koberger was vacuuming so early that morning. According to an article I read in the FBI's archives labeled Hair Evidence Part 1, once a strand of hair found at the suspect's residence is at the forensic lab along with a control sample, the two strands are examined through the use of light microscopy. The article says, and I quote, the comparison microscope consists of two compound light microscopes connected by an optical bridge that allows for the simultaneous viewing of question hairs and known hairs. Typically, a glass microscope slide containing known or reference hairs is positioned on the stage of one microscope, and a glass microscope slide containing a questioned hair or hairs is positioned on the stage of the other microscope. This enables the hair examiner to compare the microscopic characteristics of the known and questioned hairs in one field. The range of magnification used is approximately 40x to 400x, end quote. The article goes on to say that the hair examination process involves many steps, the first of which is to determine whether the hair in question really came from an animal. According to that FBI article, each species of animal possesses hair with characteristic length, color, shape, root appearance, and internal microscopic features that distinguish one animal from another. Animals like humans have different types of hair on them. They have coarse outer hairs, or what are called guard hairs. Animals also have finer fur hairs, tactile hairs such as whiskers, and other hairs that originate from their tails and manes, if they have those. I know my cats have a softer undercoat below their coarser outer coat. The FBI article said this about what information a strand of animal hair can yield, and I quote, Although certain hairs can be attributed to species, it is not possible to identify hairs to a specific animal to the exclusion of other similar animals, end quote. So it sounds like the experts should be able to say yes or no if that one hair strand is from an animal, they should also be able to further refine that by verifying that it came from a dog and not, say, a buffalo. And they should also be able to say, this hair is from a golden doodle. What they won't be able to say, though, is that this hair is definitely from Kaylee's dog, Murphy. So unfortunately, when it comes to animal hair, the analysts cannot pinpoint the hair to a specific dog. That's a bummer to hear. I was hoping they could say 100% if that hair was from Murphy. Per the FBI article, many factors then will have an impact on how reliable the analyst's hair association is considered. 
This is where Koberger's defense team might step in to try and poke holes at their evidence. And I should say not might, I'm sure they will. They'll be looking at whichever analyst worked on the hair comparisons in the lab, how much experience that person has in doing this type of scientific comparison, how much training he or she has. The defense will also be looking at the particular forensic laboratory that was used to analyze the evidence. How good is their equipment? Have they been accused of contaminating evidence in the past? The defense will also scrutinize all the photos that show crime scene analysts as they entered Koberger's apartment and the student's rental home in Moscow. They'll be looking to see how those analysts were dressed. Were they wearing the right gear so as not to contaminate the spaces inside? Were they wearing gloves? All of that stuff. Clearly, the prosecution and the defense team have their work cut out for them, and they will be very busy right up until the trial, if there is a trial. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Hey, do me a favor, smash that like button. It's a free way you can help me.